I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash Transistor. Start growing your podcast today. Andy, according to my friend, Internet, this is what Letterboxd is. Letterboxd is a global social network for grassroots film discussion and discovery. Use it as a diary to record and share your opinion about films as you watch them, or just keep track of films you've seen in the past. Showcase your favorites on your profile page. That is a lot. You bet it is. That's why I want you to tell our fair listeners just one thing you do with Letterboxd that has changed the way you watch movies. Let them have it. Okay, are you ready for this? So ready. I love lists. As of today, I have 246 lists in my account. I use them to track the movies I watch, organize them in all sorts of different ways. I track them by hand. I clone lists from other people. I use them to plan what I'm going to be watching. All sorts of things. I just, I love creating lists. It's a fantastic tool. Sexiest animated characters. Andy, what is this? We love Letterboxd. And if you're a movie lover, we are sure you will too. And when you upgrade from the free account, you will remove ads and support the great Kiwi team building this amazing service. Just use the discount code NEXTREEL or visit thenextreel.com slash letterboxd to get 20% off your pro or patron membership. And it works for renewals as well. Hello, and welcome to the next Real Speakeasy on Rashpixel.fm. I'm Andy Nelson, and that over there is Pete Wright. Hey, everybody! Each month on the Next Reel Speakeasy, we invite an industry guest to join us, and instead of serving up their favorite cocktails, they serve up movies that they love so that we can all talk about them. We'd like to welcome our guest to this month's show, actor, writer, director, and all-around funny guy, Craig Anderson. After appearing in several award-winning short films and the tap-dancing feature Bootmen, Craig made waves when his jackass spoof, Double the Fist, won the 2004 Australian Oscar for Best Television Comedy Sitcom or Sketch, beating out the more prominent comedy, Kath and Kim, a victory which seems to still provide joy for Craig and his mates. Since then, Craig has continued working in all aspects of TV shows and movies, winning yet another Australian Oscar in 2015 for Best Direction in a Television Light Entertainment or Reality Series with Black Comedy a show which is a fast-paced look at Australian culture through the comedic prism of Indigenous Australians. And when he's not busy with pursuing his PhD, Craig has also built a collection of over 10,000 films on VHS, many of them very rare. He also just directed his first feature film, Red Christmas, 
a horror film starring none other than friend of the show, Dee Wallace. We'd like to give a full fist welcome to Craig Anderson. Say hello to the folks, Craig. Hello. Oh, g'day. g'day. Oh, there you go. Okay, so I have I have a number of questions for you, Craig. A number, a list of questions. And the first one is this. Uh, what's the deal with 10,000 uh, VHS uh, movies? It's not Australian. I should tell you that. It's not like every Australian has 10,000 tapes. <laughs> <laughs> We've gotten the internet now. Um, the tapes came from me collecting them over the years. Is it was is it like an accidental collection? Like you just woke up one day and you're like, God, I've got five thousand tapes. I, I should keep going. Well, like any kid, you bought stuff you like. Like I remember buying Terminator Two on video, and then some sword and sorcery stuff it was exciting. So I only had about twenty. But then in two thousand and one, DVD started to take over. So VHS became a dollar to buy. Yeah, and I just remember walking around a video store looking at comedy titles and they were like nuts like lots of sex academy ridiculous comedy films so i started buying them for fun and just kept doing that for about 10 years i think that's why we all started buying the sex academy videos right (laughs) (laughs) no no i bought it for the cover not not for the content i just thought it was funny painting you know ridiculous i remember the joy of sex with and christopher lloyd is yeah. painted on the cover with antlers, <laughs> I think. And I thought, what the hell is this? And everyone laughed at it, so I kept buying those types of tapes, like like up the creek with the with the uh, raft yeah. that, that's yeah. shaped yeah. like a woman. <laughs> yep. <laughs> There's a lot of greats, and in Australia, we didn't adapt your post. We didn't have to put them directly onto our covers. People would paint new posters, so oh. we've got a whole bunch of different artwork. It's not oh, like really ridiculous, cool. like um, the Nigerian posters or the Polish, you know, right, that's crazy construction all this stuff. <laughs> it's just a different idea. Someone's just watched a, one of the horror films and gone, maybe this, and just painted a whole new, what would be a legitimate poster. So, yeah, it's very exciting just to, when you're not from Australia, to walk around and look at the videos and see different covers. They don't rename the movies, though, do they? Like they do in... Oh, we still do, yeah. You rename they, the movies? Like they do when they do international translations. It's one of our favorite kind of adopted games is we get these, you know, Sweden and, and you know, they, they write in and like, hey, the movie you just did this week is called something absolutely ridiculous in our country when you translate it into our language and back. So Yeah, we do that every time. I, I post on Instagram one video a day. Yeah. And I reckon 50%, I have to spend a lot of time searching. They're also not, wow. they're quite unknown films or rare yeah, films because right, right, the right. ones I collect I try and find things that you can't get on DVD or yeah. digitally anywhere so they take a little bit of searching but most of the time it's because we've changed the name that's awesome and they're not great changes they're just ridiculous they're just they're, like they're silly changes yeah. if you if you had to to pick your very favorite of your vast collection what would be at the very top the thing that 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 occupies that prima place uh, the most honored position in your collection you're most proud of I have, uh, uh, I was about to say fetish, but this is not good. Uh, actually, I can't get out of this now. Okay. Yeah. I like tapes called special interest. So if you went to the video store or Blockbuster, you would see a section called special interest. That's what we had in Australia. But that's where they had the how-tos, the sports, weed sports tapes, the foxy boxing uh, documentaries, <laughs> war documentaries so that section had lots of ridiculous things 
So I like to collect that, and I've got about 800 of these. They're pretty much YouTube before YouTube existed. The best one is, I don't know if you've heard of a weird comedian called Rolf Harris, an Australian bearded mm-hmm. guy. He's a, he's a nut. He does the a thing called the wobble board where he shakes it like a piece of metal and it wobbles, and that's part of his music. But he was big in England, but recently he's come out uh, in, well, not come, he's been arrested for being a weird sexually uh, a molester of oh. adults and sometimes teenage girls. But he made a tape in 1985 called Kids Can Say No. So it's like this horribly, oh, deeply wow. ironic film where he's saying don't molest kids and talking to kids about how to not get molested. And it's really weird. That's and dark. Some British people have told me that there's a whole slew of these famous British entertainers coming, getting busted and, and you know, Jimmy Savile is the most famous of those. Yeah. And they said the cops probably found out and made him do that video. Oh, but then like kept part it of on his... the lowdown as okay. part of his thing. Yeah, right. so he didn't get prosecuted, but someone put pressure on him to go, you better make sure you look like you're on the right side of this. Yeah. So he's made wow. this 20-minute documentary. That is super grim. That is some gallows collecting right there. <laughs> yeah. I shouldn't have opened with I collect it for comedy purposes. Yeah, right. No, <laughs> you, you, you took that. I, I also right anthropological as well. So, yeah. <laughs> well do, you remember uh, what the, do you remember what the first VHS was that you had? I remember saving a lot of money when I was a kid to buy Grandpa's sci-fi classics. And that's Grandpa Munster, Al Lewis. Oh, yeah. Really? He, he, would, sure. he did this weird series in the late 70s, early 80s, three tapes where he just used public domain clips for horror movies, like trailers for horror movies, sci-fi movies, and the other one is called Grandpa's Silly Scaries, where he just goes, oh, and does his, you know, his weird <laughs> banter and introduces <laughs> trailers. And that's it. So he was kind of trying to pitch himself as an Elvira, but just came off as crazy Oh, sad. right, right, right. Yeah, but oh, I was excited funny. by that when I was a kid. And bought those at the local chemist. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay, uh, okay. I have a, to fantastic. change gears. I have, I need you to weigh in. This is like an Australian judge's ruling. Well, this oh, this okay. came up. Well, do we want to say why it came up? Yes, Pete? because last week uh, we have uh, a friend of the show, a listener, uh, Nick Langdon, also a uh, an Australian. He writes in and he says, and I'm going to paraphrase here that uh, on this uh, whether or not the Australian audiences for movies are extroverted or introverted because when we go to movies occasionally go to big movies and people start screaming like crazy they uh uh you know they're they'll go when the big star comes on they'll start screaming and say Woo, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. and and yeah. and of course it's a cold dead screen it's really just light bouncing off of a screen yeah. and and yet we for some reason forget that and think they're actually listening like harrison ford is there listening to us <laughs> scream in, in excitement that he's back on the millennium falcon and he wrote it saying i think i'm going to the wrong screenings or else australian audiences must be much more introverted than you are and i said that's bananas all the australians i know are incredibly extroverted people you're telling me they don't scream at stuff now then i go watch your entire catalog of craig anderson is an extrovert might as well be the subtitle <laughs> yes uh, could you please weigh in on this am i crazy or are australians really introverted moviegoers we are introverted at really the yeah i didn't realize until i went to america 
and I was, I was in LA at the Grove, <laughs> and I was watching a horror film, and it was uh, people were talking as if it was interactive, like yes, a, like talking That's at the so screen funny. and amongst themselves, and going, which I love. I thought it was great, but yeah. in Australia, I think we've inherited the British way of viewing. You have to sit very quietly yeah. and not. You talk. don't say anything. Oh, not at all. No, and he- it's weird. Nick, uh, his exact phrase was, we inherited, I'm not kidding, we inherited the British stoicism, he said. Yes. I was in, I was in Korea uh, at a movie. We actually, it was the, uh, it was the first time the, uh, that A New Hope had reopened, and I was living in Korea at the time. I was sitting in the theater, and I was sitting next to, I'm a, you know, I'm an American, I'm a hairy guy. I got a lot of hair on my arms, <laughs> okay. I got hair all over. And it, the theater goes dark, and, uh, and all of a sudden, I feel somebody's petting me. On my Ooh. arm, and I look over, and there's this guy's about 25 year old Korean guy, and he he is petting my arm, and he looks at me, and he kind of <laughs> smiles, and he says in Korean, you know, he says, "Harry." <laughs> what the? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Why? No, that's that's it. Because they're, they're very just, touchy. They're very touchy. They touchy have they, they have no problem. Speaking of making gross generalizations about uh, <laughs> our, our audience, uh, I feel like having lived there long enough, I could make some of those. They were really surprised by the amount of hair on my arm. And they oh, had to okay. touch it at all times. Okay. Yeah, but that's anyway. not a normal cinema activity. It's just to, to pet the, pet your neighbor. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's it's apparently not a, a normal okay. thing. I was just the benefactor there. Anyway, none of that is why we are here tonight, Andy. Please find the rails. Yes. So we are here tonight because we asked you to be on the show and talk about one of your favorite movies. You gave us several. And the one that we thought would be fun to talk about is a film that I think it's, uh, I think I can say this, Pete, neither of us had actually heard of this film. That is true. Mm-hmm. It is a, a, a film from 1978, a, uh, a, a bank heist thriller called The Silent Partner. Yes. And uh, yeah, so Craig, <laughs> tell us uh, why you picked this film. Why is this one of the films that you love? Oh, brother. I watched it again and realized, oh, it's probably not one of my favorites. <laughs> but the exciting thing is having a VHS collection. I don't go to any websites that say these are great films, you should see these films. I just walk around like it's a video store and pick one up and put it on. And I've seen some excellent films that way, like John Frankenheimer films from the 60s and just gone, whoa, these are awesome. And lots of weird 70s alternative films and 80s films. I found this one in the same way. It's released in Australia on Star Video. (laughs) It's not an ad. They've been, you know close for 20 years that company but um <laughs> on the cover is uh, santa claus with a uh, gun in the middle of the stick up and i went whoa this is exciting put it on and watch the whole film and was really surprised and excited and thought there were some interesting choices in the film yeah and elliot gould who i really like I actually really ended up enjoying this film. I I was really glad that uh, I got to see it, especially not having ever, like I said, not ever having even heard of it before. Um, it's it's a it's this it's a nicely uh, plotted uh, thriller, and I like the way they do this. It has a it definitely I thought had a real seventies vibe. Like you had a lot of those sort of conspiracy thrillers, a lot of darker stories and everything in the seventies. I thought it fit that kind of tone nicely. You've got this this bank teller. Who gets this uh, this hint that there's going to be a robbery and kind of comes up with this plan to steal a bunch of money himself and make everybody think that the that the uh, the robber took it all? And I I liked that. I mean, I really liked Elliot Gould in this, and I liked that 
this there's this side of him that's it's like he's this kind of this immoral character who's just like he's okay with this whole idea of just stealing the bank's money he reminds me of kind of like fargo or where the hero (laughs) is made a mistake but has to deal with it you know always overstretching what they should be doing and they end up having to deal with it. I think that's one of the things I like so much. It was a surprise seeing Elliot Gould in this part because I am used to him playing a guy who is generally funnier. Oh, right. Uh, and, and, and so I think he was, it was just very strange seeing him this young and this sort of sober of a character. It falls into this category of films that I really adore, which is these kind of guys of a certain age trying to find their kind of place in the universe, right? He's already sort of beaten down like he, he likes this woman, but finds out that, oh my goodness, she's actually, um, you know, she's having an affair or, or his boss is having an affair on his, on the, his boss's wife with her uh so he's lost his chance with this woman he doesn't really have much of a much of a chance with her he's just kind of awkward uh and and yet gets wrapped up in this in this crazy uh scheme and ends up being kind of making choices that are not good guy choices you know i just yeah. love that like this is generally not a <laughs> this is not a positive message movie like right, would he have would he have thought that he was going to be you know burying a body at the bottom of a building when right. this whole thing started? <laughs> of a woman he was sleeping with, right? right? Yeah. Like he was having a good relationship, well, an okay relationship. And he he, <laughs> lo- he he enjoyed her company, and then he's burying her. He went through a lot in that film, but it's also like one of those um, like Sam Peck and like Straw Dogs, where the guy has to find. His masculinity, or become evil, so to speak. That's a that's a thing, and I was I was hesitant because I usually use this as call this like the the men of a certain age finding their power in the world. But that's this is not a good message for the, that language because <laughs> his power is to like dominate and clean up bodies and like figure out how to steal a bunch of money from a bank, and and so you know not a role model, kids, but he's still. Is looking for a better life. Yes. It still does that thing of you can be normal or you can attempt to move away from your normal life and have a better, you know, head to an island and live happily. So uh, let's talk just a, a bit about Curtis Hansen. I, he, as a, the screen where we know Curtis Hansen, we love Curtis Hansen. We've seen some other Curtis Hansen uh, films more recently. This was an early script uh, from Curtis Hansen. What do you think about the just generally the way the script was put together and the way the film was paced and uh, in terms of just the straight-up writing of it? I love the way we introduce, they introduce the robbery, the way that this is going to play out. It's Elliot, it's just tons of looking. And it reminds me a lot of the conversation, the beginning of the conversation, in that he's at the teller, he can look at the Santa Claus working on the next level, and he's just slowly piecing everything together, including the handwriting. And that's like a big thing throughout, is that he's worked out that the Santa Claus, who's got like a charity sign, has written the letter G or C in the same way that someone's written on a uh, bank slip that they're going to rob the bank, I have a gun. And it's just great because he's just slowly piecing everything together. And there's no moment where he has to explain the exposition. It's just all shown to you. It's a great example of that in that you're watching it. It's Elliot Gould. You're still engaged. There's some good 
subplots in the space with John Candy. <laughs> um, <laughs> which, I think that's like his first film appearance. And he, he's great. He, that's like a sad little storyline moving along there. <laughs> and that's just happening around him whilst he's watching and we're seeing the Santa character watch him and there's the exposition just happens. And then before you know it, you realize he's come away better than the villain. And that's done without words, which is great. I think it's just, yeah, he only really has one line about the whole thing where he's just like, have you ever seen a Santa that doesn't like kids? I think that's like the only thing that he really says (laughs) and everything else is just him watching and noticing. And I, I loved how perceptive he was as a character and how he keeps kind of he, he catches this this Santa time and time again, just these subtle little hints that really kind of help him put this whole thing together. And I, I loved how how effective that was in the screenplay without having to spell it out so much. And that, as you said, people around him refer to him as a good worker and he's observant and stuff, but no one has to shoehorn it in or make it really gross. Like no one says, man, you're really observant at things happening right. outside in the mall because <laughs> that would be really lame but they, there's enough going on where he's a really good worker he's sort of a social reject compared to the other cool people in the bank and and you can tell it's because he cares more about work and doing the right thing and it sort of lines up with the way that well he can be observant enough to see this happening this is it, it's one of the things I, I actually found myself connecting some dots for with uh, around Curtis Hansen. We've done LA Confidential on the show, and we've talked about Never Cry Wolf. I don't think I think Andy, you haven't seen it yet, right? Yeah, that, I still that one's still on your one. list. Um, it, it was fascinating to watch this film, and, and in light of the expediency of exposition, like you say, I think that's that is such a trait of his economy of screenwriting, Curtis Hansen. I think he he has mm. um, and, and look, watching this film, it, it's really cool to see where that comes from uh, because it's something you could you could make exactly the same uh, uh, the same observations around LA Confidential which I think is one of his just pinnacles of his work it's just terrific and so it was really fun to see I was really surprised that I had never even heard of this film and to find out that he wrote it uh, was a real treat and we should say that at least I mean it was an adaptation of a, a Danish book and film uh, by Anders Bodelson. Uh, a, movie, a story called Think of a Number from 1969. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, he was working off of that, um, but I still think that, uh, you know, he was able to really just, I, I mean, I didn't look into the, the film uh, from uh, uh, Denmark about about uh, how well that did or what people thought of it, but I feel like he really did a really effective job of streamlining this story. It was very taut. It was just very... Um, uh, the plot just moved nicely. It didn't feel like there was a lot of extra fluff all through it. That was, I think, the same thing could be said, though. I mean, you want to you want to see a movie with an expedient uh, screenplay. Uh, I I swear the Never Cry Wolf screenplay must be like eight pages long. Like it is, it really is is an effectively written piece in that same regard. And also working off a book, L.A. Confidential, working off a book. I don't think either of those. Obviously, he had no film to work from. But in regards to that expediency, the. And not having fluff around it. Yeah. The fluff, well, the stuff that isn't just pure robbery is to do with marital and having affairs and cheating and stuff, which is great because it has the theme of transgression. And like in a horror movie, the setup has a lot of someone's (laughs) – I just watched also on VHS, Peter Weller in a film – what's it called? Where rats are in the apartment and they're – 
just eating through the apartment. It's it's insane. It becomes Peter Weller versus rats. And <laughs> it all comes from the fact that he has a, a secretary that he kind of loves, but he also is married and the wife has gone away. And it's kind of plaguing him at work. <laughs> and then he goes home and just can't find these damn rats. And it's 90 minutes where he's fighting a giant rat and ripping his house <laughs> apart and going crazy. But it does the horror thing, which is this transgression usually to do with having love and cheating on people. And so in the silent partner, in this film, there's a whole bunch of transgression going on around him. In fact, a lot of it reminded me of The Apartment, the, the Jack Lemmon film, where he yeah, has to sure. help his uh, bosses cheat on <laughs> on their partners and destroy their own families in private, you know. So I felt like Elliot Gould was given that job in this film a fair bit and it made him angry and want to have to change his life because he had to help his boss cheat on someone. That's really true. And even the B story, like even even uh, John Candy's story about, you know, <laughs> that, that ends up also being about just this kind of weird kind of traitorous betrayal relationship, right. you know. Love it. You know here's Candy. hope. We're going to take this little bubble of hope and right in front of you, we're going to pop it. <laughs> it's so sad because it, it happens almost in the background. Yes. Like there's just a few lines. You see them. There's no dialogue about it. He's cracking onto a girl. And then there's another bloke come up to him in a classic weird misogynist 70s thing and going, she's all right. Oh, look at the rack on her or something like that. And then <laughs> later on, she's just in a bathroom. Elliot Gould goes to the bathroom and walks in at a party and she's with someone else. And the only other beat of that story is he's at the wedding of John Candy and her. <laughs> and it's like, oh, my God, piecing those three things together, she, John Candy's going to be screwed over forever. It's, so it's awful. Yeah. It's awful. Yeah. It, it, I mean, it's not like almost in the back. In some cases, it's literally happening in the background at the party. <laughs> like, it is literally in the background of other action. You are watching him and his future spouse uh, being sort of torn asunder, and he doesn't even know it. It's the well, he's sleeping. Thing. He's sleeping in the chair downstairs. Yes. At the party. Yeah, yeah. that's right. <laughs> that oh, is one great. of the greatest little gifts of this movie. I thought that was great. Is the movie the Peter Weller? Just for our notes, since you brought it up, I now have to see it. Is it of unknown origin? It looks like that's yes. the one. Nineteen eighty-three. All right, <laughs> yeah. it's on the list. Yeah, Peter it's Weller great. versus the Rats. There's a lot Very of great cinematography in that. That you know that also it's a really interesting idea though that you brought up because then it's like the whole idea of the crime throughout the story and how everybody is really guilty of crime in some way in this story they're all you know committing infidelity his crime that he's committing is just a little higher up than that some of these other crimes although all in all they're all they're all doing something that's that's uh pretty bad but it also speaks to the title which i think is interesting the silent partner and we're talking about relationships here and I mean, he's kind of the, if you could look at it this way, the unfaithful one in this relationship with Christopher Plummer, you know? <laughs> well, I guess in a way he's doing what he should have done to his boss. Like, yeah. used that information to get with the person who, she, she kind of likes him. He's not like a, some sort of rapist. He, he likes the woman that the boss is with and she kind of likes him back. But she's just like, well, too bad, this is what I'm doing. Yeah. So what he could have done is worked on that problem. But instead, he does the exact same what he should have done there with the bank robber, where he goes, I'm go I've seen you transgress. I'm going to help you and then steal everything from you because you can't say anything because you're a bad guy. 
but that's the that's the crux of the film. I, I don't know if we've actually explained what this film is about. It's really about the villain. Yeah, why don't yeah. you go ahead and, and give us uh, give us the background as you see it? Elliot Gould works at a bank. He's a bit of a loser. He doesn't have a, you know the life he wants. He realizes that. He continues to work. He real he uncovers a plot that someone's going to rob the bank. He, and just before that happens, he splits the money that's in his till and puts it in his lunchbox and takes it home. And so the guy who robs the bank is pinned up with a lot of money. And so Elliot Gould, being the teller, can say, well, the guy stole 40000 And everyone goes, yeah, that's terrible. And it goes on the news. And he's kind of a celebrity because he, he was there when it happened. But then the bad guy who's gotten away is mega angry and starts calling him and finding out who he is, finds out who he is, calls him from across the road. And there's just great sequences where there's a telephone booth, which I really miss in movies because you could have, you don't have mobile phones where people are in different parts of the town. This guy stands across the road on his phone looking up at Elliot Gould's apartment and there's just tons of interaction between them where he's going to come and take the money. He wants the money. But Ellie Gould has hidden it somewhere. Well, he puts it back in the bank in a safety uh, deposit box. Which is brilliant. Yeah. And then <laughs> the bad guy wants to go, rips apart his apartment trying to find the key or work out where the money is. But then one day his cleaner throws it out in the trash. And now he's got this <laughs> other awesome problem in that the money he's stolen is in the bank that he works in and has stolen it from, <laughs> and he needs to work out how to get that back out. The uh, relationship, I, I love that you bring up the Christopher Plummer and the phone booth because it's really terrific. It seems like Christopher Plummer's role in this, or, or maybe why he took the role in particular, is because of all the great costume changes he gets. He goes from Santa <laughs> Claus in the beginning to a woman at the end, and I'm telling you, he's a passable woman at the end of this thing. It's great. <laughs> He he also has a I don't know if it's a Christopher Plummer right, but dark eyeliner at some yes. point before he dresses as a woman. Yes, yeah. And I read online that just on message boards, people are saying, "Hang on, is his character meant to be gay?" <laughs> Which makes no sense. But I should say, there's a rough moment, and it's a '70s roughness where it's like, "Whoa, that violence is too much." When he's upset that the bank robber didn't work, the next time we see him. He's at a club or a sports center or a bar or something. And there's a girl who likes him. <laughs> and it's weird because it's Christopher Plummer. And he's kind of an older man. And yeah. she's a really young girl. And she comes up and she tries to get with him. And he kisses her back. But then he's, he's he I think he slaps her. And then she falls to the ground. And then he puts his foot on her face and pushes her head <laughs> down yeah. and... The next thing is a cut where there's a whole bunch of men standing at the doorway going, oh, you've gone too far this time. It's kind of showing that this, who was a clown, I guess, because we saw him dressed as Santa Claus and he kind of failed the first time he wanted to rob the bank and then the second time he did do it, but he didn't get his money. So I guess he looks like a low status guy. And at some point they've gone, well, we need to make him look really tough. So this is this scene where he beats up a woman. 
Well, what's your, I mean, that, that uh, actually, it was, it, you're right, it's a really grim sequence, but I found that sequence to be particularly rewarding in unraveling who this character is, and back to that expediency of screenwriting, mm. that one line, you've gone too far this time, allows us to uncover a world of this character, right? A, a whole world of who he is and what he does, um, and, and transform him in our eyes. He's no longer a clown, he's somebody to be taken seriously. Yeah, that's true. He's definitely off the chain <laughs> at that yeah. point. And then yeah. he is menacing and we know how far he can go. Maybe it's just the way I read it, but I didn't work out till afterwards that he must have been angry. And that's yeah. why he did that. Because he was so staring off into the distance type of guy. And then he right, just right. snaps and does that. And it's like, well, where did that come from? And then I work out, because the next scene he's calling him going, I know who you are now. Yeah, and right. it becomes very clear that he's nuts. But when I saw it, I found it a, a little abrasive, like, whoa, that came from nowhere. But speaking to the violence, I was really, um, it was, maybe it's just the 70s-ness of the film. But it, I mean, aside from that club scene, then you have the scene where he beheads the girl. <laughs> that was, oh, man. That was Boy, shocking. Did that kind of come out of left field? I wasn't expecting it at all. Uh, although it fit really well with the with his character and with the, just the violent tendencies that he had, but I was really not expecting that to happen. And especially just like to hold on it so much as he's like grinding her throat across the the piece of glass. It really uh, shocked me, and uh, it was interesting that they kind of took it to that level in this film. That was amazing. <laughs> and then he leaves her head in the aquarium. That was Ugh. that was like he's really... not just killing her; he's literally taking her head off to yeah. make a point. Again, it's the love. He was with that woman, and in jail, so that woman was seeing Elliot Gould and it has transgressed. And then he's almost punishing her. Like it's all this film kind of says: the moment you do something wrong, you're off. You're a criminal in no matter what respect, and you could die. You're not worth anything. You're not in a moral world. Yeah, that's an interesting worldview of the film, that, that there, is no, there is no safety. As long as we've gone ahead and moved the goalpost of morality south as far as we have, then it, it doesn't matter you know, who you are. You're going to lose your head one way or the other. Although in the end, they, they get away with the money. To me, it, was, it felt kind of part of that 70s vibe. You know, it, it has this... Um, you know, we, we're beating the system. Like, the system yeah. itself has corruption in it. And, you know, we are uh, criminals ourselves, but at the same time, we are, uh, you know, getting away from the system and we're kind of going to create a new life. So, I don't know. It, it de definitely kind of had kind of a darker 70s vibe, the fact that these that he gets away with as much as he does. And then she finds out, Julie finds out, you know, everything that Miles has done and kind of is just like, yeah, it's okay because I... I've been wanting to escape and create a new life for myself too, so let's go for it. It's pretty interesting. I mean, it's it's thrilling to see them get away with it, and then you think about it, it's like, gosh, they're you know, not, I guess they're not good people. <laughs> they're not good people, and the whole film is left with this giant sort of black hole void of trust. How could they possibly go off and live any sort of authentic relationship with one another after what they've been through? And she's been screwed over by him so much. Right. He's such a nut Man, to her. He was the nuts. Hot, cold, that hot, cold game he's playing the whole time. It's just, yeah, I'm surprised she ended up with him at all. I mean, geez. This is, uh, this is uh, Susanna York uh, uh, we're talking about here. She, she plays um, uh, Julie Carver at the bank. And, but she calls him on it every morning after he's rejected her. She has to say something again, and it makes it very clear to the audience that she's being screwed around. I kept trying to figure out what... what what do they want me to think of her, right? Because it, it, she is, 
that she's having the affair is sort of one thing, right? But that she's doing it so intentionally and so overtly, and clearly the subtext, the physical subtext of the relationship between Susanna York and the boss's wife when they meet at the at their holiday party is such that everybody knows this is going on. And as soon as that becomes the level of awareness that we have on screen, that everybody knows this is a, a you know, a relationship of infidelity, um, it yeah, as much as I wanted to even find myself with some affinity towards Susanna York, I didn't even have that. Like, she she ends up losing integrity in the film, and, and I wanted to like her. I mean, I, I do kind of like her, but it, it to me, she kind of came off as that sort of character that she really was kind of a broken woman who was stuck in these relationships that uh, really she could never win with, you know? She had um, the boss that was always uh, just, you know, I mean, he he had a wife. I mean, so that kind of says everything about where she's going to get in that relationship. She never really spoke like she was hoping that one day he would divorce her and all that. It just seemed like she was just the other woman, Mm -hmm. and that's how things were, and she didn't seem to have too much of a problem with that. And and even with him, just kind of that whole hot, cold uh, game that he was always playing with her, it almost seemed like that kept her... Uh, she seemed more interested the more he played, or more. She seemed okay to keep coming back to it, I guess. And that that to me kind of just spoke spoke of how broken a woman she was that she couldn't be in a in a solid relationship with somebody who was just always going to be there for her. Uh, this was the same year that she played Superman's mom. <laughs> yes. And uh, she was, she is, she's terrific. And even though she's not my best friend, uh, Celine Lomez uh, is plays Elaine. She is the the poor woman who leaves her head in a fish tank. Uh, she was uh, one of the finalists in casting for uh, Charlie's Angels, but lost uh. out to Tanya Roberts because they said she was too sexy for prime time. <laughs> so if you're going to be known for something. Uh, that's the reputation you you probably that's okay uh she was i thought she was she was a, a great character she was stuck in between the two because uh, the of, of gould and Plummer because uh she was actually dating or, or she was actually cozying up to elliot gould because she was working for christopher Plummer and was with him and she ended up it, it's when she ends up sort of changing sides that uh Plummer loses loses his cool with her and she does that great moment in the bank where she starts Elliot Gould's worked out she's the best way to – she's going to come in and pretend she owns the safety deposit box and help get it unlocked. And then when she gets it given to her after they've had a locksmith in there for two hours, she opens it up and starts to pull the money out and put it in her handbag (laughs) in front of Elliot. And he walks over and he has to – because he's pretending to work at the bank, and yet there's another bank employee in there, so he has to come over and go no, <laughs> and whisper to her, "We've agreed. Don't you? You're not taking this." And there's an excellent moment. It just speaks to how you can't trust anyone in this film. <laughs> in that, well, she could screw him. She's still not completely on board, but then she puts it back. So there's just ton, a lot of moments where we're shown a character's given a choice to betray someone or to stick with them. 
like in most scenes. <laughs> it totally, and it's it really is beautiful too because of Gould's response that that was one of the first times that we look at him and he puts his hand on her in an unnaturally physical fashion. Mm. That's the first time that we get to see, in, in my view, it's the first time we see him as not just calculating, but uh, but dominating uh, it, it physically in a in a way that is somehow threatening. Um, and that I thought that was really interesting. The way that sort of played out in the the sort of the physicality of the sequence. The the other great scene between the two of them was uh, when he kind of realizes that she's working with uh, uh, with Harry and is kind of okay with it. And they have this <laughs> this amazing scene where they're kind of talking about it in bed. And it's it's just like they kind of acknowledge the whole thing is there, and they kind of go along with it. It's almost like this 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 thing they decide. You know what? We like each other enough to just kind of keep exploring this and see where the whole thing ends up. And uh, maybe it'll be okay. Maybe it won't. But we're not going to worry about it right now because we're just going to screw. (laughs) (laughs) It's the 70s. That's right. Exactly. (laughs) I loved it. Yeah, I thought it was terrific. Uh, the other two uh, uh, great characters as we bust through the cast here, Michael Kirby uh, plays Charles Packard. Uh, he is, uh, I-, I think, remembered for, in this film, for me, nothing more than, hey, could you babysit my mistress for a few hours? <laughs> what? Yeah. How, how do you ask somebody that? Like, that's just that seems so awkward. That takes such, like, nerve. The nerve. Mm. I, I just—it's—it's it's hard for me to wrap my head around that. And the other is Sean Sullivan, who plays Frank the bank guard. Talk about familiar faces cropping up in this uh, yeah. film. Uh, saw him, uh, Sean Sullivan, in two thousand one, and the Dead Zone, and he's got a lot of credits to his name. Uh, just a very familiar face, and possibly the only friendly uh, uh, character in this film. The only character who walks away, uh, I, I think, unscathed by the amorality or the immorality of the film. I don't think he ends up doing anything, you know, that smacks of infidelity. No, the he's bank stoic. guard. He has to. He's, yeah, he's just the bank he's guard. The, almost the old system because he yeah. ends up shooting the bad guy to death. <laughs> yeah, <Yep. laughs> again and again and again. Yeah. So anyhow, any any other characters that uh, jump out to you uh, in the cast that we haven't talked about? Just in the setup of John Candy's. Yeah. Uh, girlfriend who becomes wife she wears a bunch of t-shirts <laughs> like it's a teen comedy right. <laughs> one of them is bankers do it with interest <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and another one is penalties for early withdrawal <laughs> i don't know why she's wearing these in a bank like everyone else is it's like dog day afternoon everyone is dressed quite appropriately to work in a bank but she's wearing these t-shirts it's almost like clever production design because they didn't write her as they didn't have to show scenes where she's sexually active with lots of people until they pull it off until they do yeah yeah (laughs) but to set her up when she's flirting with john candy she's wearing these t-shirts that show that she's nuts or like she's in a weird softcore teen comedy that's what makes it so funny too is the fact that they don't ever mention it and no one else in the in these bank sequences looks at her askance at all. Like it is totally <laughs> totally normal for her to be wearing these absolutely categorically inappropriate t-shirts. Brilliant. Yeah, those, those are like banker t-shirts that you see somebody like joke selling on Facebook. You just Yeah, <laughs> that's right. It's not. like she got, she got them at the holiday party and never took them off. <laughs> right. 
Uh, it was brilliant. I also brilliant, so brilliant. Funny. really like, I don't know what it is, but the shopping mall. I just, <laughs> I don't know if that's a weird thing to like, but films set in shopping malls I really like. And this is at the period of Dawn of the Dead, which is another of my favorite films. Oh, yeah. Where I look at this, the shopping center in this and just, I don't know, I get excited. I like the design of it. <laughs> the well, I love it. that. I love that they actually bring it into the story a little bit too. Like the the final the final uh, shootout kind of takes they bring it out of there and the whole thing on the escalators and everything. I just oh. loved that. Oh, I mean, because escalators are not comfortable. I just see him falling <laughs> on the escalators. I'm like, oh man, that just hurts. Did you did you get sidetracked at all? I totally came out of the film experience at the end when he hit the bottom of the escalator and he's dead. And I'm thinking about the actor getting the stairs pushed under his skin, like getting pinched. Right. Oh, I know. Uh, that was the worst. I uh, never came out of it. I loved it. I, I think that's. Excellent. Oh well, I just, I have you a know. fear, a great fear of escalators, so it's probably <laughs> me. Like, right here, it's very you're, you're that guy who has to like jump over that last yeah. step onto the thing just to make sure you don't get sucked in. Are you sure they don't have a fireman's pole anywhere? I would take that over an escalator any any day. Anyway, it reminds me of the end of the Charlton Heston film, The Amiga Man, the where he plays the sole survivor. I mean, they remade it. At, yeah. What was it? I am legend, legend. Oh yeah. That's Will yeah, Smith. That's yeah. Story, right? It used yeah. to be <laughs> Charlton Heston. And it was that great thing of the seventies where a white man hates new things. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, and that was a sci-fi and they was zombie vampire thing. <laughs> but it, it, you know, I think on a meta level, it's about, Oh, things are changing. Women are getting to do things. Minorities are doing. Oh, I hate this, <laughs> and yeah. the fights against it. And at the end, he becomes. He ends up lying in a fountain, sp- sprawled out like Jesus, and his blood <laughs> is going to provides the cure for everyone. It just reminded me. I don't know why, but Christopher Plummer lying at the bottom of the escalator, dressed as a woman, <laughs> <laughs> desperate to have a better life, and be turning himself into a clown to try and defeat the world that's changing just lying there almost like that shot in Amiga man that's like uh, christ-like it just, <laughs> i don't know resonates a lot with me it, i like that look of it what did you think about uh, daryl duke's direction on this because i mean he's mostly a tv director but i didn't it didn't feel tv to me what do you guys think i was surprised that he hadn't done more i was very yeah. excited about the direction everything about he- it I, it, it looks like he only did like four four films or so. Everything else was TV, like Thornbirds. I mean, he did like long form TV in addition to like TV shows and stuff. But I mean, yeah, seeing that uh, that you know his previous film Payday, Roger Ebert said was superb. So it sounds like he could have made a, a bigger career of directing features. I thought he did a great job here. Well, this is set in Toronto, and right. it was made Canada and Australia had a similar thing where we in the 70s started to let tax breaks happen for films. So there were a lot of awesome films, but at the time they weren't received well because they were just considered exploitation and not proper dramatic films. And history tells, you know, look, those films were awesome. (laughs) And the stuff we make now that we try and get into film festivals, no one cares about and history won't care about. But I think he might have suffered from the same thing a lot of Aussie directors have suffered from of that period in that if they did have some skills working in genres was a disadvantage because as we moved away from allowing tax breaks and making films very cheap to make 
they became really artistic and highbrow, and that's when they stopped letting these types of directors direct, which is probably why this guy ended up having to do TV and not keep making films. And the fact that his, the, pinnacle, the pinnacle of his career is the Thornbirds. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Emphasis on pinnacle. My mum loves the Thornbirds. I, yeah, for some oh, yeah, don't, yeah. We've just insulted all three of our mothers, I'm sure. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, mum. Uh, but yeah, it is. It is a really. I think it is a really tight and and uh, a tight film, and it makes it really makes good on the script. And I think you know you already mentioned the cinematography. I mean, Billy Williams does the the cinematography, and and in general, I felt like it. It this weirdly, you know, your your excitement about the mall. I think his cinematography showcases the mall and how interesting the mall was in the seventies, right? Yes. I mean, because that was this was like the heyday for malls, the seventies and eighties. Like this is when malls were awesome. Uh, <laughs> and, and they weren't prefabricated like being on a cruise ship. They were just building a big building with lots of mini buildings and spaces that had their own personality smashed in together, which is great. And it, yeah, there's that line in Dawn of the Dead when they're flying over for the first time and they look down at the supermarket, uh, the shopping center, and they say, what is it? And that always resonates me because I've grown up since malls have existed, so I'm always going to them like that's the, what they are. But there's that moment in Dawn of the Dead where they have to talk about it's one of those they new have to explain it. Right. Yeah. yeah, and this is what we're going to spend our time in, and it's weird. It's Isn't it great. fascinating that we of our generation have existed for the entire life cycle of the mall? <laughs> that, that now we're in an era where we used to like hang out at the mall for fun, and now we're going to shoot malls that have been abandoned and are mm. lying destitute. At least we have those all over the place now. Malls uh, that are well, you're you're in you're in hippie Portland though. Oh, <laughs> why, why you gotta hate? You know your spirit is here. You know your heart is here. It is in, you're right. in Australia, in the areas I live, the malls have been rebuilt as bigger, better. So there's yeah. just old dead malls because they weren't good enough. <laughs> yeah, right. right. <laughs> so they're just they're giant. Now they're casinos. Practically. They have fun parks inside the malls. Yeah, right, I mean, it's, right. it's mm. crazy. Yeah, no, it's, um, it's pretty nutty. Uh, speaking of more of the cinematography, though, I mean, I loved some of the shots that they got. Like um, there's a scene where Elliot Gould is inside the safety deposit box room. And you've got all those jail bars like in front of him, and it, they used they used some of those locations inside the bank really to a great effect, just to kind of give these little subtextual nods of kind of the this place that these people were in and this world of crime that they are all finding themselves in. And uh, also, I loved the the shot of Christopher Plummer's eyes when you've got that mail slot, when, when he just opens the door. Oh, yes. And yeah. I, I've never seen somebody's eyes through a mail slot look so intense and terrifying. I mean, he really looked like he could have just killed Elliot Gould with his eyes in that shot. Can I just say, Christopher Plummer really brings it in this film. Like, he's excellent. He's very charming, but it, before charming, he's malvoyant, he's hideous, he's scary, before he becomes charming. And I just watched a film also on VHS, called Villain, where Richard Burton plays a, a bad guy, and it's fantastic. Like, um, Ian McShane's in it, and he's very young, and he looks like a mod, because I think it was 1971, maybe? And uh, Richard Burton is playing this really... It's based on um, the twins, the Cray twins, that uh, Tom Hardy just played. 
Oh yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's based on the the guy, the gay twin. So Richard Burton is playing this villain who has like a, a bevy of boys underneath him. The the main one is Ian McShane, who he uses sexuality as well as just heavy handedness to control his gang and get what he wants. And it's really awesome and scary. But apparently Richard Burton was maligned for doing this. And it was kind of the end of his big roles in film because he chose to do this. Um, But Christopher Plummer's performance in this reminds me of that kind of intensity where in the 60s they were doing big, bright blockbusters and ridiculous, you know, fun things. And now they've gone, screw it. I want to prove that I'm tough, (laughs) that I'm hard and I'm a good actor. And he's come out and done it, I reckon. With, with an incredible variety, and we're going to showcase it in Taking Down the System, which now we have this whole cultural awareness of the 70s that we hate systems and organized governments, and this is our metaphor for taking them down. I actually, I'm looking at the poster for Villain right now. I love it. Meet Vic Dyken is a tagline, then wish you hadn't. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. That's great. I love movie it's, it's a very good film. It's... um. Yeah, I'm surprised it's not more spoken of villain. Uh, yeah, it's definitely worth a watch. Uh, music is Oscar Peterson. Uh, mm. th- how well do you feel like the score supported the film? You know, Oscar Peterson, he's he is an amazing jazz pianist. Uh, I mean, they call him the Maharaja of the keyboard. And I, I really enjoyed the theme for this. I don't know if he did all of the music or just kind of the main theme, but I enjoyed the theme. I thought the music fit really nicely. And I got to say, this sent me on kind of this this Oscar Peterson spiral. I ended up buying a whole bunch of his albums and just kind of became an overnight Oscar Peterson fan from uh, from this film, which I wasn't expecting. I don't know what happened. I can't remember a single piece of music from this film. So it's fit very well. <laughs> as you've asked me, I've got, I, I guess it did I its job. I'll tell you why as well. Because it's set at Christmas. I've just made a horror film about Christmas. Yeah, And right. Black... Black Christmas, the 1974 Canadian horror film, uh-huh. is full of Christmas tunes throughout and it uses carols to do that. So I was probably obsessed with the background music in the mall <laughs> in this film, in Silent Partner. Whenever I heard Christmas carols, I registered it. But I've got no That's idea it, yeah. what was happening <laughs> musically at all throughout. Between the standards? No. <laughs> yeah. That's too funny. <laughs> Uh, well, he's one of those with a ton of. Well, it's actually not too many credits uh, in film. No. But he he passed. There's still a couple of uh, a, a couple of films that have come out that use his his tracks. American Hustle uh, and Black Mass, in particular. Um, he had his his some of his material in there, but he didn't he didn't do a whole lot. No, I think his composing is relatively uh, thin for yeah. films. But mostly it's just them using pieces of his. And I think it was just, it looks like a Silent Partner credits him as the theme composer. I guess that's what that means. I guess so. I, I guess so. I mean, they yeah. didn't credit anyone else to do any of the other parts of music. That's so I was a little, strange. a little confused by that. But uh, but he still got a Canadian Film Award for it. <laughs> How el- What else did it do in, in Canada in terms of, of performance, uh, Andy? You, uh, you dug into it? Well, I looked at the Canadian Film Awards to see kind of... Uh, who was who won or what what won and this film ended up winning it looked like it got six canadian film awards and i guess this was a time of i don't know if it was turmoil or what for the canadian film awards but they were taken over after this year by the academy of canadian cinema and they became the genies which that's what i had always been familiar familiar with from from canada but uh, this film 
won for Best Director, uh, Best Feature Film, Best Film Editing, Best Music Score, Best Overall Sound, and Best Sound Editing. Now, looking at the winners, though, I was a little confused by their website because it has multiple winners. So to me, it looked like maybe <laughs> maybe they just, like, you all did a great job. I mean, they are Canadian. After all, so. That feels so wonderfully Canadian. Oh, that's awesome. Here, you all take an award. You are so taken by all your work. You all get awards. I think that speaks to why they had to reshuffle things next year. <laughs> Someone's come in and gone, hang on a sec, guys. You can't give all the nominees the award. It's not what's supposed to happen. It's not, it's it's it not much of an award anymore. <laughs> like giving all the participants honorable mentions. Oh, so funny. Uh, how did it do in the uh, in the uh, box office, though? Did, it, uh, did you get any numbers on that, or was that buried in the lore of Canadian accounting? Uh, no, I found some information. I didn't find. I fi- found information as to what it cost. I couldn't find anything as to how much it made. Um, but it uh, it it cost. Um, and it, this was really tricky because it was Canadian dollars from uh, 1978 that then I had to convert in 78 and figure out what it was today. But it was about 2.8 million U.S. dollars in 1978, which is about 10 million for the adjusted budget that they spent to make this thing. So it's a lot of money. <laughs> Yeah. I it, think it was a decent amount. Yeah. 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 Well, I was curious. I mean, I'm assuming that it was a, a an actual location, so they probably you know spent a bit on getting the locations. And I mean, they brought Elliot Gould and Christopher Plummer up, so I don't know what their salaries were, but I'm guessing it was probably pretty handsome because they were, especially Elliot Gould. I mean, I know he had a string of flops before this, but I mean, he was a '70s guy. He was one of those one of those big people that people saw everywhere in the '70s. I should say, Elliot. I He's love so him. Great. But I've never understood people who refer to him as attractive or in love. I, I don't know. I'm not being cruel. But in this movie as well, there's a few moments where people say, but you're so good looking. <laughs> and I just I never get it and don't understand. I just think he's awesome, but not – I even there were there was a moment where I thought, maybe they've miscast this because they keep referring to him as young and hot. <laughs> and he's Elliot Gould, you know. I don't know. I'm sorry. That sounds terrible. <laughs> cool. But you know what's funny is I, I had that same feeling. And, and it, it, honestly, it was right up until he runs out, like the phone rings, like the second time they're about to have their exchange between the phone, uh, with, between Plummer, Plummer and, and Gould. And he runs out on the street and shouts in the night, right? There's that big wide shot. And we get the him under the spotlight in the middle of this wet street screaming, where the hell are you? And I thought, wow, that Elliot Gould just became like, a dominating force in this that's awesome look at him go he became he went from being elliot gould to <laughs> he's a man's man he's a role model for others so anyway i i think that transformation is really interesting and shows just how versatile he is and it, you know i mean he was i i feel like i i need to go explore more of his early catalog because i you know i i immediately elliot gould i immediately think like ocean's 11 oh. like he's the funny <laughs> kind of old yeah. rich guy right and uh no, I've got a lot of video VHS where he's on the cover with a woman, like a romantic lead. Yeah. Like lots. I can think of three yeah. different covers where he's like a love interest and a cool guy. It's funny, my my first uh knowledge of Elliot Gould was as a kid with I think it was a movie called The Last Flight of Noah's Ark. That <laughs> um Yeah, it was it's it was like he was Noah, and he f- was flying a ship full of like <laughs> zoo animals or something with some kids, and they crash on an island, and they have to figure out how to turn the turn the airplane into a boat I, to sail I, out. Is off this the a island. dream? 
It was. I'm surprised you don't Somebody have this. Somebody misread one in your VHS the source collection. material. <laughs> no, oh, I loved it as a kid. I mean, it was like that perfect. It, it came out. There you go. 1980. So it was a perfect age for me to watch, like a kid's adventure, and and it, it was a. I I would love to see it now to see exactly if it's just a completely whacked out film or what. Because it was. I don't know. I thought I had a great time. It was uh, him, Genevieve Bujold, Ricky Schroeder. What? Yeah. yeah. No yeah. way. <laughs> Rick, I believe he prefers right. Rick now. So uh, yeah, oh, gosh, I should rent that one. See if it's any good. That's Probably good. isn't. Well, we are uh, we're moving into our uh, uh, why people show up segment of, of the show, uh, and so uh, before we get into that, and we actually get into the ranking, do we have any closing thoughts? Any final lessons that we should take away from this film? You can't trust anyone. <laughs> that sounds ridiculous. <laughs> but the seventies was a topsy turvy time where in horror. You could end a film where it was like, yeah, everything is bad. Like at the end of The Wicker Man. Sorry, right. this will continue and you will just die. <laughs> that is how we wrap this up. And in this world where everyone is bad and or it's kind of like the society is shifting and their morals are out the window and we're all trying to negate it together. But amongst that, there will be some blood. There will be some horribleness and you're just going to have to resort to old school animalistic fighting back to survive and that's what that's what i take away from this film i you know this was a uh, again not having really ever heard of this film before i had i had a great time watching it i really enjoyed it it was taught it was uh, interesting um it uh, kept me surprised i mean it wasn't i, I never really could tell where it was going to go and I loved the that '70s uh, just vibe of the whole thing. It it really was dark, um, but it also just like the the story construction I thought was really well done. Uh, something we didn't mention, but how um, how Elliot Gould's father kind of figures in is just kind of this this little subplot in his life, and you just kind of see this beautiful scene where he's at his father's uh, nursing home as these kids are singing Christmas carols there, and it's just a touching little scene. And then then next time we are involved with his father it's at his father's funeral and that's where he ends up meeting elaine but just a very simple way to kind of introduce the elaine character was just having those couple scenes there i i loved the simplicity of it without having to go into a lot of exposition it was a well-made film very uh, solid and i had a great time watching it this is definitely something i would check out again I love that you brought that up, the the father's role, because isn't it so great that uh, Elliot Gould's character takes such a turn for darkness after his father dies? Um, like with with no longer with this sort of compass in his life, he's he's kind of a wash on his own, and uh, and and ends up making some very you know interesting choices. You wonder if he would have made those choices if he'd had if he'd still had his father, if that was some sort of symbolic connection to goodness. Uh, and I thought just that was you really great. saying that yeah. speaks to the the writing and just showing you small pieces to give you all you need to know. Like you don't you don't have to do it in a, a boring long scene <laughs> where father I'm going right. to miss you and father I don't know how to live without you <laughs> stuff it's just him on christmas cut to funeral it's great very good yeah brilliant all right now andy uh, I, I think, I think it it's is. time for us to rank it craig are you familiar are you familiar with flickchart.com no have you ever heard of flickchart Flickchart is a service. It's a web service. It's a, a website. It's fantastic. Let me start with that. But it often gives our guests uh, no degree of uh, apoplexy because <laughs> of what it asks you to do. Uh, 
Uh, it, it is a ranking service. We have this list of, of all of our films, and you put you, you say, here's what we want to do. We want to go to flickchart.com. We want to log in with our account. We want to type in the silent partner, and it presents you the silent partner on one side and another completely <laughs> random film from your list on the other. And as if you were on a deserted island with nothing but a TV and a VCR, you have to say which film you, you find uh, better oh, wow. between those two. We call this the Filmo a Filmo uh, Reckoning uh, on FlickChart.com. That's great. It is really terrific it is, and, and torturous. And uh, so here we are. We, we offer this uh, to you. It is the oh, first no. of two of our ranking <laughs> systems that we do on the show. Now, if, you, if there is a chance that you have not seen one of the films, I, I have a very difficult <laughs> time believing that that could happen. But if there's a chance you haven't seen it, don't worry about it. Andy and I will rank this uh, okay. next to that on our own. Uh, and we will continue to move forward. It only gives us about, I don't know, eight or ten uh, films to to rank. Excellent. And, and then we'll be finished. So here we go. Andy. First up, we have The Silent Partner or John Ford's Stagecoach, 1939. Mm. I am definitely Silent Partner on this one. Yeah. We just talked about <laughs> definitely We just did a 1939 series and talked about Stagecoach. And uh, it was, it was it okay. Was but yeah, that it was tough. Uh, didn't wow me. What about it, you, Craig? No, I think I saw it when I was very young. And I have that young person, like a kid thing, where you're like, oh, I don't want to watch this. Why isn't, why isn't the cartoons yeah. on? So that's my bad attitude yeah. about it. I'm sorry. I, I should watch it again that's first. But No, we oh. we just saw Stagecoach and have that exact thing. And we're like in our yeah, 40s now. So All right. Next up, this is uh, tougher. The Silent Partner or uh, Boogie Nights? Oh, this is tougher for me too. If I'm alone on a desert island, I think that's you. That is of its time. It's not trying to throw back. Like Boogie Nights is '90s view of the '70s, whereas I would rather see the original thing, the '70s thing. I mean, I love Boogie Nights. It's such a great film, but it would be weird to see if I. Maybe I'm taking this too serious. You only had <laughs> those two choices. Uh, I. <laughs> I think it's is that I don't think authentic. that's possible. I, to I, take I it too like that this one's authentic. Boogie Nights is a wink, wink. This occurred before, and like he, a he's a very cl- it's like a caricature of its display of that period of time and stuff. But it's not. I'm going to go for the authentic thing. I'm going to say Silent Partner too, actually, Pete. Wow. Um, I, it, that actually resonated with me quite a bit what you just said, and also I think you know. Looking at the two of them, if I had them on the shelf, I just feel like Silent Partner, I think, is going to be a much easier watch, despite some of the intense violence in that one. Um, but I, I think I would probably pick the Silent Partner. So that's me, Pete. Well, I, then my vote doesn't matter, and so I can. I, I, you still can't. <laughs> I I think I'm gonna go. I think I'm gonna go with uh, with Silent Partner too. But I just want, for the record, mm. I feel really bad about it. <laughs> hey, Boogie Boogie Nights is great. <laughs> like it's it is a genuinely difficult choice for me. Genuinely difficult. I it, it resonates with me too that the idea that that Boogie Nights is a, is a character choice. It's a satire of mm. uh, of an experience of a time and of an experience. And uh, but but the fact is, I I don't have a lot of of Wahlberg films that I that I like and and this one I really like a lot and so I, I what breaks my heart is a little bit is that I sometimes like to just give it to him just because you go Wahlberg this is this was the one so anyway oh, okay wow. so Silent, Silent Partner, Partner takes that next? one we got Silent Partner or National Lampoon's Vacation Silent Partner I'm don't vacation even need to finish it I'm vacation <laughs> 
for the same vacation is so so boring now have you watched it recently yes with you and i loved it (laughs) it's it's like an hour and a half movie that takes 10 hours to get through the funny parts no it's brilliant i'm going the only reason i'm going for vacation (laughs) is for the same authenticness (laughs) the opening sequence of vacation with those postcards that whole 80s stuff i love it i yeah yeah, the song, and songs the all song through it great. are great. Like it's just a an anthropological study because they travel from state through state. You know, they they go through a lot of exciting things. The way you're selling it, though, it sounds like it should be a documentary, and it is a lousy documentary. <laughs> no, it's, no, it should it, be in the special feature good, section. I think it is a good documentary. I think comedy often shows you what's going on in the world at that time. And if it's not funny, I don't care. <laughs> Maybe I laugh three times throughout, but I'm happy to see it through that lens of, well, look, we're in this area and this is what happens in this area. All right. We're a silent partner. It's a bit too insular in its small place. Oh, it's okay. terrible. All right. I'm sorry. <laughs> All right. Hey, I, 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 I doff my hat to you both. You have won yet again. All I feel right. like this well, now- is not film versus film. It's us versus you. It's <laughs> <laughs> us versus me. That's exactly what it is. Well, next up, we have The Silent Partner or The Descent. A fun little <gasps> horror film. Oh. Boy. We, we are fans of The Descent around these parts. I am a big yes, fan. Yes, we are. Yeah. I think I'm going to have to go with The Descent. I am too. Yeah. All right. Hey, we got a unanimous vote. The Silent Partner or Shaun of the Dead? Shaun of the Dead. Shaun of the Dead. Shaun of the Dead? Yeah, Shaun of the Dead. Yeah, Shaun of the Dead. (laughs) All right. Dare I ask, what did you think we said? Dawn of the Dead. uh, Oh, Dawn of the Dead. Yeah, we've done that too. There's also Mom Mom of the Dead? What? (laughs) There is also Wan of the Dead. I have yet to see Wan of the Dead. Wan of the Dead. The I thought you said Bourne, Bourne. like Bourne it was a weird dead. mashup of the Bourne films in a zombie apocalypse. <laughs> I would see that film. That'd be great. I'd like to pitch it just for the story I <laughs> yeah, can right? tell people. Yeah. <laughs> All right, we've got The Silent Partner or Out of the Past. Great little uh, noir. I don't. I haven't mm. seen Out of the Past. Oh, oh, uh, you need to. You need to. Yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, rock solid film noir stuff. Yeah, there. it is rock solid. Where, uh, where do you Mitchum, put that? Jane Greer. Uh, I'm going to go with Out of the Past. I think I am too. I think that's a, kind of an easy choice. Yeah, that's that's one of the top-notch numerals yeah. out there. Mm. Next up, The Silent Partner or The Curious Case of Benjamin Button? I'm straight to I, Silent Partner. Sorry. Uh, I'm Silent Partner. <laughs> I am Silent Partner too. What do you think? I, I'm just not a fan of that film. I actually really like that it. film, but it is a—it's a long film, and it's mm. just not something I feel like I probably will put on that much. Um, I if, would if, I would feel okay. like the Silent Partner just is going to be a breeze to watch. Yeah, yeah. Uh, more comedy for you, Craig. The Silent Partner or Caddyshack? Oh, mm. I I liked a lot of Caddyshack, but I didn't like the the whole caddy part of the story. I agree. I feel like I, the Silent Partner is the more uh, the more uh, just a a film that's stronger as a whole. <laughs> that's my I vote. am with you. I like Silent Partner better than Caddyshack, and I would watch that before I'd watch Caddyshack ever again. <laughs> no, that sounds terrible. I don't understand the appeal of Caddyshack. I, I but looking at attitude. it from an anthropological point of view. <laughs> yes, it's a documentary about the golfing habits. Oh, uh, no, it's ridiculous. It's... 
of the wealthy suburban teen crowd. <laughs> Midwestern American teens. It's not uh, for me. No. All right, I'm, I'm not a huge fan of that one either. So, Pete, what was yours? Uh, silent Partner. Now oh. out of shame. <laughs> no, you can say Caddyshack just if you wanted to. I, I, I actually, I would, I would also. We, we just did Caddyshack again, and there was. I am a big fan of Caddyshack, but at the, as we watch it again, and Andy, he shamed me into realize waking up and realizing there have there are problems with it. There are some problems. Yeah, with it, there so. are problems with that. Yes. <laughs> well, that leaves the Silent Partner at number fifty six on Ooh. our list, smack dab between Out of the Past and Caddyshack. So I think that's a good place for it. Six out of uh, out of two hundred some, yeah, that's wow. uh, pretty high up there. That is pretty high up there. It feels like a good place for it. But what does it do for our star rating? Now, this is our second uh, ranking where we have our partner account on Letterboxd.com, where we uh, supply uh, stars. So, on a, a five star scale, where would you put this one? This one should be easy. It should be easy. Yeah, <laughs> right in the heart. I don't know. <laughs> It's I, a four star for me. Yeah, it's a solid four, four star. Yes, star. okay. I didn't want to say it first, but that's where yeah. I... <laughs> I've ranked it on hey, IMDb. I, that's what... I've given it eight out of ten. So, yeah, great. All right, Excellent. perfect. Excellent. Yeah, you came on saying, you know, it's not my favorite film. So, I'm like, I, I thought it was great. I, I know. Such... I was like, what are you doing? Well, you I was hesitant. It. I was hesitant. I didn't know if you don't, guys hated don't it. Feel, or... Don't feel any shame. It was fantastic. Oh, this was like an easy watch and definitely something I will come back to. So, I'm really excited that you... Uh, that you uh, brought this one to us. Oh, and believe great. me, we say this every time. We are nervous about the day when our guest comes on and brings us a really crappy movie. <laughs> <laughs> we, we don't have that problem yet. This was really, uh, this was a terrific watch. And I think uh, it comes with our highest seal of recommendation. Go see this movie if you mm. haven't seen it. It's great. I give it a full fist. A full <laughs> no, that makes no sense. If no one knows... What I know, but the history. See, what you say that what you don't realize is our show notes are just going to be populated with links to all of the YouTube videos. <laughs> oh, okay. Of, you know, all right, from good. The archive, the full fist archive. <laughs> Brilliant catalog. Great, it is thanks, great stuff. Well, Craig, thanks so much for coming on the show. If people want to find you and uh, and strike up a conversation with you, how would they go about tracking you down? Or maybe start following you on Instagram so they can check out all these wonderful VHS tapes of yours. I would do that. I don't say this much to talk about with me, but go to Instagram, Craig Anderson underscore VHS, and you can um, watch what I, I post one or two videos a day from my collection. And it's great. It resonates with people like uh, people will see something that they haven't seen in 20 years and go, oh my God, I forgot that that existed. Which is great. Now, do you travel with? Do you have to travel with VHS tapes just so you have them ready <laughs> no. to put on Instagram? I have a big warehouse in Sydney, but what I do do when I travel is come back with tapes from everywhere uh, I go around the world. I go to op it's like it's like the Raiders warehouse, right? I mean, yeah, you just have this giant crates. <laughs> well, you know, there's a lot of excellent stories of things hidden in tapes or footage hidden on tapes and. I think out of the 10,000 I have, there's probably something weird amongst it. There's a collector in Australia that's hit up all the collectors, this nut job who's after a copy of Ken Russell's Gothics. But amongst all the eBay sellers, we've chatted and said, well, hang on, we've sold him more than 100 copies of that tape. So everyone's trying to work out what does he want with his tape. And the best theory is he's done something like shot... um, the video of him killing someone or burying something or something hideous on one of these tapes and it's been taken to a thrift store 
or back to the video store. And now his whole mission is to find the copy of Ken Russell's Gothic to oh, see wow. to, oh, to erase it, to get rid of what he's put on it. That's the story that needs to be told. <laughs> That's the it's documentary, yeah, Craig. Yeah. God. It's true. That is awesome. <laughs> we thought of That's having fantastic. a track um, and, and having a night. A honeypot. Yeah, it's, it's a thing where we at our warehouse, we'd put a thing saying, screening four copies of Ken Russell's Gothic <laughs> from video live at the same time on four different screens. And he would have to come because if the thing appears... He's going down. So we'd trap right. him by coming to the screening of the of the Ken Russell tape, the gothic tape. Yeah. That is oh dark. My God. <laughs> so good. So funny. Well, you have to promise if we ever make it out there that you've got to uh, take us to your warehouse so we can check. Oh, absolutely. You it. can stay at the yeah. warehouse. It's like living in a <laughs> video <laughs> store. <laughs> yeah. You're, you're quite the host. <laughs> we'll put you up in my no, warehouse should, should of VHS I, I live in the warehouse too. I have like okay. a, a room and there's an awesome lounge suite, neon, like it's the 80s and Oh, All the tapes are in genres, so you can walk around. It's just like a video store. Well, thanks so much again for joining us in the next Real Speakeasy, Craig. Yeah, it was super fun. So much fun. I'm very glad you enjoyed it. That's great. And for all of you out there, we hope you enjoyed the show. If you like what you've heard, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Google+, Instagram, Pinterest, Letterboxd, Flickchart, and now YouTube. And don't forget to head on over to iTunes and leave us a rating and comment. It really does help more people find us. Thanks for tuning in, and until next time, I've got to go check my safety deposit box. I'm gonna use you to be my friend. You know what I got the other day, Pete? Stephen King's latest. Want to borrow it? Do you know who you're talking to? What do you mean? Andy, when's the last time I read a paper book? It's been decades. I would much rather use Kindle, or better yet, Audible. What am I thinking? I don't read paper books anymore either. I'm an audiobook guy all the way. For those looking to listen to the books behind the films that we've talked about here on Movies We Like, not to mention all the other podcasts in the Next Real family, get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at thenextreel.com slash audible. There are so many great adaptations from movies we like available in audio form. Early on, we covered Casino Royale with director Matthew Gratzner. You went through all of the 007 books on Audible, right? I did indeed. What a series. We also covered Room with legendary D. Wallace and Never Let Me Go with costume designer Alana Morshead. We chatted about Fat City with cinematographer Sam Levy and Silver Linings Playbook with the great composer Harry Gregson Williams. 101 Dalmatians and Bambi. Apocalypse Now, There Will Be Blood, The Thin Red Line. There's so many great adaptations with so many great guests, and you can get all these as audiobooks on Audible, along with thousands of other great reads. Producing this podcast is a lot of fun, but it does take a lot of time. We have already dropped the dynamically inserted ads because they are so annoying and have no connection to our content. Plus, they just jam those things in wherever they see fit. We listened when you said you didn't like them. So now, we're directly appealing to you, our dear listener. Please, consider an Audible subscription to help support movies we like and the Next Reels family of podcasts. I've been using Audible along with my family for decades now. I love it, and I've read hundreds of books through it. Couldn't be more pleased with their service, and I know you'll love it, too. Head to thenextreel.com slash audible and get your free trial. It really helps us out. And you have a world of over 200,000 audiobooks open to you. So much great material available. 
Dive in with a free trial and get your first free audiobook at thenextreel.com slash audible. Start listening to amazing audiobooks of your favorite movie source material with your first free audiobook today. That's thenextreel.com slash audible.